We have an excellent podcast suggestion for you this week that comes from our friend Kelly Jennings. With her background in law enforcement, she brings a needed perspective to true crime cases. Her show is called Unspeakable and is one you can find on your favorite podcasting app with a new episode every Wednesday. Here's a little about the show from Kelly herself. Welcome to Unspeakable, a true crime podcast where I tell stories of real crimes with real victims, whose cases are so shocking that many are left wondering, how is this even real? I use my experiences in law enforcement, corrections, and combined with my years as a criminal justice educator, dig deep into complex cases of evil acts, some so evil, many feel they are unspeakable. Unspeakable, a true crime podcast by Kelly Jennings can be found wherever you listen to your podcasts. But I have to warn you, if you're easily offended, then I'm not your girl. Listening discretion is advised. We make it our mission to discuss lesser known cases because we believe they deserve coverage. And we feel the same about the products that we use our voice to promote on the show. We want to share products of value and quality to tell you about the products that are worthy of being talked about. That's why we want to tell you about McAvoy Ranch and their sustainably produced extra virgin olive oil that's the world's best, and it comes from their Northern California ranch. The company is female-founded and female-led by their president, Samantha Dorsey. Olive oil itself has so many health benefits as an anti-inflammatory and an antioxidant, but McAvoy Ranch also makes olive oil delicious. They have an innovative and yummy signature olive oil collection with flavors like organic blood orange, ginger turmeric, and chai spice olive oil. Their flavors are distinct, creative, bright, fresh, and oh so delicious. It's olive oil that can enhance your cooking in a delightful way. Visit www.macavoyranch.com. That's M-C-E-V-O-Y-R-A-N-C-H. And enter promo code COFFEE15 to receive 15% off your order. You will be so happy that you did. They are a company with products worth celebrating. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Before Christmas break last school year, my students had used 144 pencils that I purchased for my classroom. Like most teachers, I bought nearly all the supplies in my room. So every snapped pencil, broken crayon, uncapped glue stick, or dry erase marker that was left open was like a personal stab to the chest. Because after time, supplying those materials can be expensive. I often wanted to shout, you can buy a pack of pencils at the Dollar Tree, please go do that. But I never did. Because my mind always went back to one boy I went through school with until he dropped out at some point in high school. This kid never, and I mean never, had a pencil. In fourth grade science class, he asked for a pencil every single day. 
and my teacher gave him one with a smile on her face every single day. This kid was also never clean. He always smelled and he always had dirty clothes on. No one ever wanted to be his partner for science projects we did because no one wanted to smell him for the entire class period. I remember one class, my teacher pulled me aside as I walked in the door and asked if I would be his partner for a battery experiment we were doing in class. She said she noticed I always gave him a piece of paper when he would ask. I, of course, told her, yes, I would be his partner. So for the next two days, I sat beside this little boy, learning about who he really was, about how he loved science, and he wanted to be a mechanic when he grew up. And I learned that his house didn't have running water, and that his window had a board over it because his father had thrown something through it in anger. I never noticed his body odor after those two days. I took that lesson with me into my teaching career, and into today's case as well. Because the little girl we're going to talk about today didn't have the best home life. She didn't always have clean clothes or a pencil or anything else that's the basic need of every student. But that didn't make her any less worthy of everything good the world had to give her. And this poem by Joshua Dickerson reminded me of her. It's called, Cause I Ain't Got a Pencil. I woke myself up because we ain't got an alarm clock. Dug in the dirty clothes basket. Cause ain't nobody washed my uniform. Brushed my hair and teeth in the dark, cause the lights ain't on. Even got my baby sister ready, cause my mama wasn't home. Got us both to school on time, to eat us a good breakfast. Then when I got to class, the teacher fussed, cause I ain't got no pencil. This is the story of Tammy Jo Alexander. Welcome to Coffee and Cases, where we like our coffee hot and our cases cold. My name is Allison Williams. And my name is Maggie Dameron. We will be telling stories each week in the hopes that someone out there with any information concerning the cases will take those tips to law enforcement so justice and closure can be brought to these families. With each case, we encourage you to continue in the conversation on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, because, as we all know, conversation helps to keep the missing person in the public consciousness, helping keep their memories alive. So sit back, sip your coffee, and listen to what's brewing this week. Coming from the career we do, Allison, we are no stranger to the hardships that kids endure in their personal lives when they're away from school. Yes, people have no idea. It it can be no. a punch in the gut every single day. And I was in tears when you were reading your intro because I know exactly that same emotion that you were feeling because we felt it every day for students, too. Mm-hmm. And Tammy Jo was one of those kids that we would have known was struggling and we would have helped her as much mm-hmm. as we could have. But, you know she had a hard time dealing with the hand that she had been dealt in life and it was rightfully so. Right. 
Tammy was born on November 2nd, 1963 in Atlanta, Georgia, to her parents, Barbara Jenkins and Joe Alexander. And while her parents and her life were far from perfect, she did find consolation with her half-sister on her mother's side, whose name was Pamela Dyson. Hmm. At least she felt like she had somebody. For a little while, at least. Oh, no. Tammy's parents, though I don't know how long they were together, split up not too long after Tammy was born. And after that separation, Tammy, her mom Barbara, and her sister Pamela moved to Brooksville, Florida. So they're at first in Georgia, then they moved to Florida. Okay. After that move, somewhere in there, Barbara, the mom, became addicted to prescription Mm -hmm. medications. And Tammy's half-sister, Pamela, recalled later, quote, she did prescription drugs. She was suicidal. I think she had issues back then they didn't diagnose, end quote. Probably, because we're talking the 60s. Yeah. Still? Yeah. So. Yeah. And Pamela was lucky in a sense because she was eventually able to leave that home situation Because she Mm -hmm. had a different father than Tammy, she was actually able to go live with her parental grandmother. And she left home at about age 11. And from what I remember, Mm -hmm. she was older than Tammy. Mm -hmm. That had to be hard for both of them. Because I'm glad that she was able to get out of whatever situation that she was in. At the same time that it makes me sad for Tammy that she was there by herself. Yeah, and... She recalled, like, through all of those suicidal episodes, and her mom would, you know, violently scream, they always found comfort in each other. And Pamela actually said, quote, my mom put Joan Crawford to shame. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I guess for our younger listeners, mm. um, that's a pretty big comparison. Yeah. It's a pretty heavy thing to yeah, say. Yeah, it is. She went on to describe her mother as a screamer and a slapper. So when she would get mad, she would hit Mm. them. Pamela said, and you know, I think this forces kids to grow up so quickly Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because Pamela was 11 when she left and she talks about when she left, she remembers trying to make herself feel better by saying, oh, Tammy is smart. One day she'll escape this home life. You know, one day things will be better for her. And I think what 11 year old should have to even think those thoughts. Yeah. What a mature thing, I think, for an 11 year old to say. Wow. But sadly, Tammy really didn't escape that life. She did continue living with her mother and stepfather at the time. Mm hmm. Eventually, as Tammy got older, she started trying to make her way in the world, and she actually began working early in her teenage years at a truck stop as a waitress. And this was the same truck stop that her mother worked at. So even in her work life, she was still with her mom. I was going to say, that's that's bad, because then she really can't. There is no escape. Right. Yeah. And I think because of that, you know, the feeling that she had no escape and she had this really hostile home life, Tammy had been, according to one report, in and out of foster care. She'd stayed with a grandmother on occasion, but always ended up back in this same situation. And because it was so hostile at a young teenage age, she actually started running away from home. 
I mean, if it's that hostile, then who could blame her? So on one of the occasions that she ran away, she actually ran away with her really good friend, Laurel Noel. And in this particular escape, we'll say, Mm -hmm. the two Mm -hmm. actually hitchhiked all the way to California. Oh, my gosh. With whoever. From Florida? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So literally across country. Holy cow. And Laurel stated that the two had um, hitchhiked with truckers. They hitchhiked with whoever would be willing to give them a ride. But when they arrived to their final destination, she actually called her parents and they bought both girls plane tickets and flew them back home. And they were around Mm -hmm. 15 at this time. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. My little sleuth hound is 14, and I cannot imagine. Yeah. And by the time she was 15, Tammy was hitchhiking with long-haul truck drivers pretty frequently. So, her family was used to Mm. her being gone for short, sporadic periods of time. And, you know, I think... We as parents would be very concerned about that, but I don't think that Tammy had the support she needed to get the Mm -hmm. help that she needed. Because obviously Mm -hmm. she's crying out for help through all of this. Right, right. I just, I'm worried if if it got worse when she came back after all those times. Because clearly she's trying to get away. Gosh. And Allison, in early 1979, Tammy's short, sporadic runaway adventures turned into something much longer. She actually ran away in that year from her home in Brooksville, Florida, and she went to work at a prison ministry in Georgia. So, like, this place that helped young men who were on parole or Mm -hmm. were on, like, under probationary rules adjust to this lifestyle that they were now in instead of like this so she lifestyle. she actually was someplace long enough to get a job to start working which i think which i think is crazy because she's like 16 at the time and i but right. like were they not checking that and like saying yeah do you not have to have somebody sign off for you if you work at 16 i don't know how that right. works Hmm. Yeah, I don't either. And I would think that there would be, especially if you're working in a prison ministry. Yeah, because I think you would have to like, I mean, maybe it wasn't state owned, you know, like a state job. Maybe oh, it was okay. a private place. But if it was the state, yeah. I would think you would have to have, you know, a background check or something. Yeah, that's what I would think too. This runaway trip, though, wasn't just for the short short term, like you said, because she was there long enough to get a job. It appeared that Tammy was in it for the long haul. And like I said, she's only about 16 years old at the time. And it wasn't like she was exactly trying to hide what she was doing from her family and friends, because while she was there, she would call and talk to her boyfriend or leave him voicemails when he didn't answer the phone while he was still living in Florida. Oh. And the boyfriend was asked about these phone calls. And he said that every time he spoke with Tammy or every time she left a message on the answering machine, she always sounded happy. And he said that she never seemed to be in danger, never hinted at any type of danger. She just Mm -hmm. seemed happy. 
Hmm. However, Tammy eventually left that prison ministry in the summer and was not heard from or seen after that. Interesting. Okay. I'm curious to hear if we have any details. So this case actually has a lot of um, details and a lot of interesting. It's like one of those with sort of like the teeth analysis. Like it has some really cool forensic oh, okay. details. So she wasn't seen after she left that ministry until the morning of November 10th, 1979, when a farmer in Caledonia, New York, which is like 23 miles or 37 kilometers southwest of the city of Rochester, saw something red in one of his cornfields. And so he's like, this is odd. This is really out of place. Let's just go see what okay. what's over there. Because at first okay. he's thinking, you know what? A hunter's trespassing on my property. They do this mm -hmm. all the time. They need to get out of here. But mm -hmm. what he found was far worse than anyone trespassing on his property. Oh, no. Oh, no. So instead of a hunter, he found the body of a dead young girl in his cornfield. Oh, no. <sighs> so we're up in New York? Yes. And you're going to be... You will be amazed at the journey they are able to determine that this girl went on. Like the oh my gosh way that she got around the country was amazing. Well, because I was going to say, like you said, she's done with the prison ministry at the end of the summer. And this mm -hmm. farmer doesn't find her, I'm assuming this is her, until November. Yep. So she had to have been somewhere in those months. Mm -hmm. And it's crazy, the path that she was on. When police arrived on the scene, they quickly noted that whoever had killed this girl didn't leave a single piece of her personal information behind. So they <gasps> had no way of telling who this girl was. Wow. That's so they ridiculous. actually named her Callie Doe because they had no other Callie means Doe? to identify her. Surprisingly, though, she was fully clothed, though they are able later on to get a male DNA sample from her body. So I thought that was interesting. Okay. That is interesting. Unlike her identity, which proved hard to determine, the cause of death was evident from the start. She had died from a severe hemorrhage caused by two gunshot wounds, one to the head <gasps> over the right eye and one in her back. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow, so this was so violent. Very, um, yeah, very violent. According to one article titled Murder of Tammy Alexander that was updated on October 25th, 2022, quote, the wound to the head indicates she had apparently not turned or flinched, as is common when one is shot in the head. Instead, the injury wound suggests complete, if horrified, surprise. Her pockets have been turned inside mm. out, suggesting that any identification she carried had been removed, end quote. So... I would be interested if somebody somewhere like were to recreate this, if you could figure out, mm -hmm. you know, the angle that it went in and was it from above? Was she level with the person? Cause I just have a hard time picturing, oh. I guess maybe she turned into it. 
But then why the shot in the back? Like, if she doesn't flinch, then could the shot in the back have come first? And then the shot above her eye? And that's why, I guess, the angle or trajectory of the bullet is straight versus, you know, what it would look like if she turned or flinched? Well, the autopsy reveals a lot about that because, you know, her body was sent off for an autopsy and the results of that did determine that tammy had been shot in the head first oh interesting i would not hmm that's interesting and they determined that investigators did because they found a blood spot along the side of the road that would have been consistent with her head wound And then they can tell that her body was dragged into that cornfield. So they're able to tell she was actually shot along the road bordering that cornfield first. Wow. Which makes me feel like it was a hitchhiking incident if it happens along the roadside. Yeah, but this is such a rural area. A lot of people wonder if it could have been Mm. someone from that area as well which i guess those two could kind of play in mm-hmm. together Mm-hmm. and i don't know yet how she en- even ended up there so she may have been there a while and gotten to know somebody i don't know i'll have to wait till you tell me <laughs> you got your wheels turning already <laughs> that's right So they're able to determine that this person shoots her in the head and then they drag her into the cornfield and shot her again in the back and there she was left for dead. Sadly, I read that it did rain very heavy on the night that she was murdered. So most forensic evidence that we would have normally been able to find at the scene um, or on her was washed away. Mm. Police did believe that the murder weapon was a 38 caliber handgun and investigators were able to locate a bullet, like a spent bullet in the dirt underneath the girl's body, which they compared forensically to hundreds of bullets that were fired from confiscated weapons that met that 38 caliber handgun. But those efforts mm-hmm. to trace the weapon expanded across north america so into canada they even checked some that had been confiscated from um, people that were like fleeing to mexico and europe but that bullet as far as i know still has not been matched to a specific gun wow that's a lot of forensic testing though just to check Mm -hmm. yeah and Despite the fact that investigators had little forensic evidence to go on, they did note some very interesting characteristics and details about Tammy, and we're going to discuss those now. But I want to remind you, Allison, and the sleuth hounds that are listening, that at this point in Tammy's case, she is still a Jane Doe or Callie Doe. So I'm going to kind of use those um, interchangeably. Okay. At the time that they find her body, they believe that Callie Doe or Tammy was between 13 and 19 years of age. They estimated that she was 5 feet and 3 inches tall and was about 120 pounds. She had light brown hair that was shoulder length and had been frosted in the front. And it looked like that had happened about four months before she died because some of that, you know, her roots were showing it was growing out. And her hair appeared to have been recently dyed from blonde to brown. They were even so detailed that they noted that her toenails were painted this coral color 
Mm-hmm. And so, you know, while we didn't have a lot forensically to identify this girl, they did have a really good description of her. I mean, down to the toenail color. And so they're thinking, yeah. you know, we're going to be able to release all of this about her, about what she looks like. And surely some family is going to turn up to claim her and lay her to rest. But that didn't happen, at least not right away. Well, and you know, obviously they don't know this, but we know from what we know about Tammy, we understand why that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Yes. Along with her tonal color and her hair color, police noted some details about Tammy that I wouldn't have thought significant, but you know, I'm not really trained to look for that type of thing. But right. apparently, <laughs> right, right. they noted she had visible tan lines from like a halter top or a bikini. Hmm. And to them, this was significant. Then after I read it, I was like, oh, duh, Maggie. Oh, because we're in November and she's in New York. Right. Yeah. Nowhere where you're going to get a a tan in November. So that detail, that tiny detail that I wouldn't have even thought a second about, they were from that detail, they were able to determine that Tammy or Callie Doe had to have been visiting new york from a warmer climate right she had to come makes complete from somewhere with a lot of sunshine even in october or november Mm -hmm. for her to have such Mm -hmm. distinct tan lines right because this is 1979 and her tan would have been natural because tanning beds didn't really become a thing right until later in the 80s they also noted that she had freckles on, like, the back of her shoulders, acne on her face and her chest. And so now investigators believed that somewhere, either in the Deep South or potentially on the West Coast, a family was desperately trying to find this young girl with the freckled back and the hair that was dyed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've talked about several cases where teeth have played a vital role in determining who a person was or, you know, even where they came from. Right. And they did examine Tammy's teeth. But in her case, her teeth showed nothing significant. The teeth were in natural condition. There were no restorations or fillings. It actually appeared that she had never been to the dentist. She'd never received dental care. So they're not going to have any type of, you know, dental record to look at. Records. Wow. And some of her permanent first and second molars suffered from severe dental cavities and decay. Mm. But to me, uh, this could be, maybe this is just me thinking about my childhood. But to me, I would Mm -hmm. immediately go to like social class here because I'm thinking, you know, how often do we overlook dental health when we're struggling to make ends meet Mm -hmm. that seems like that's the first thing that goes you know and it makes complete sense for those of us listening because any of us who are listening have likely gone to the dentist and if you've ever had even with dental insurance dental work Mm -hmm. done it costs you out of pocket an astronomical amount and this is with dental insurance so i mean that does it it makes sense to me. And I think that's why, you know, growing up in rural Kentucky, I mean, we had fluoride delivered to the classroom, Mm -hmm. you know, and different things like that, because 
I think there's at least an awareness of the need for dental care because that's linked to all kinds of other health issues. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even go to the dentist. I mean, luckily I have, I will say had because now I have cavities thanks to, you know, IVF throwing <laughs> up and then the, the baby throwing up. I right. don't have cavities, but I yeah. had really good teeth and I had never been to the dentist until I got married just because that was like mm-hmm. a luxury my family could never afford. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a mm-hmm. lot for a lot of people. But like you said, and this is going off on a, a tangent not related to this at all. I think that dental health is part of physical health. And so I don't understand why the coverage oh, is, is so poor. Yeah. Because if you have poor teeth, I know. that affects everything. Mm-hmm. So, get- mm-hmm. so I get why you said, you know, seeing poor dental conditions would make me also think of a lower socioeconomic class yeah, for Cali Doe. Yeah. Also consistent. So so right now we, the amateur investigators we are, are putting all of this together. And Mm -hmm. they also noted that um, she hadn't had any wisdom, wisdom teeth come in yet, which I think also points to her age. Because, you know, if you're younger, Mm -hmm. those take a while to come in. I mean, mine didn't come through until my 20s and 30s. Mm -hmm. So, teeth, nothing really significant that we're going to be able to go on. Right, right. Her blood type was A negative. But one thing that really stuck out to me throughout writing this case was that the autopsy revealed that she had actually eaten just hours before she was murdered. And within her stomach, they found hmm. corn, potatoes, and canned ham. Hmm. And I think that's strange. So it doesn't sound like something that you would get, like, it's not fast food. It doesn't sound like something that you would get even at, like, a truck stop or something. I mean, this sounds like a a meal somebody prepared. Yeah, I would think, you know, this is like you went in to maybe a diner or, you know, some type of restaurant where you're actually going to sit down or maybe somebody cooked this at home versus, you know, chicken right. and french fries or potato chip. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So just as investigators noted her tan lines, they also noted her clothing and jewelry. And if you remember, the farmer that discovered her body said that what caught his eye was that he saw something red in the field. And that uh-huh. red was uh-huh. her red nylon line men's windbreaker jacket. The jacket had black stripes down the arm and was actually marked on the inside with a label that read Auto Sports Products Incorporated. She also had on a boy's multicolored plaid button-up shirt that had a collar. She had on tan corduroy pants in a size 7. She wore blue knee-high socks, a white bra, size 32C, and she had on blue panties. They even Mm. noted that she had on brown shoes. So they're taking some detailed notes about her appearance here. Mm-hmm. We've also discussed in cases, so, you know, we've talked about teeth and how they've been able to tell us where people are from. And we've talked about, you know, pocket watches that we've been able to trace back to the exact store that they were purchased from. Or right. clothes that mm-hmm. told us the country where this person may have lived. And so investigators mm-hmm. thought, this red jacket, it's so unique we will definitely be able to track down where this was purchased from because, you know, they have that company name 
printed mm-hmm. right, there on, right there on it. Yeah. But they actually reached out to the company and found that this, and this I thought was weird, but they were told that this red auto sports jacket was produced as a one-time promotional item and it couldn't be traced after distribution. So once it left the factory, they well, didn't know where they went. Oh, uh, well, or they could have said, you know, we sent it to every auto zone in the country. That's and true. then, you know, you, you would have no idea where it went after that or every certain kind of race or something related to cars. That's sad, though, because it as soon as you said the name on it, I was thinking that exactly what you said. I was like, oh, Okay, well, maybe we can figure out exactly where this came from, but no. And I wonder if this would be more work, but I feel like almost with watches or something like that, you know how they have serial numbers where you buy Mm -hmm. baby food and it has, you know, where like the serial number on it in case there was like a recall. Sometimes I wonder if we could do Uh that same concept with clothes and then they would be able to say like serial numbers one through 100,000 went to auto zone in lexington kentucky in michigan yeah. yeah yeah i don't i don't know why they couldn't i mean it would take more more funds time i guess right but it would certainly help in cases mm-hmm. like this and along with that jacket she also wore a silver necklace that had three small turquoise stones and they thought that the necklace looked handmade and maybe was a replica or maybe actually handmade by Native Americans, maybe in the southwestern United States. And attached to her pants, this is interesting to me too, like in the front belt loops, were two metal mm-hmm. keychains. One was shaped like a heart and it had like a key-shaped cutout and inscribed on it were the words, he holds the key to my heart. So initially I was like, if we can find this key... Then we right. know. Yeah. But she also had the key attached as well oh. that fit into that keychain. But those were sold all along the New York State throughway. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so leading investigators were able to conclude we at least know that she traveled along this route because that's where she got these little charms. Well, and from what we know of Tammy, I mean, the jewelry could have come from that hitchhiking trip out west that she oh, took. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And the findings stopped there, for a little while at least. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. 
Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. My daughter and I love smoothies. What we don't love are smoothie bar prices. With our Blendjet 2 Portable Blender, we can make smoothie bar quality drinks for a fraction of the price. Blendjet 2 is portable, so you can blend up a smoothie at work, a protein shake at the gym, or even a margarita on the beach. And it's small enough to fit into a cup holder, but powerful enough to blast through tough ingredients like ice and frozen fruit with ease. Even better, Blendjet 2 is whisper quiet, so you can make your morning smoothie without waking up the whole house. Plus, it lasts for 15 plus blends and recharges quickly via a USB-C. You guys have heard me say it before, and I'll say it again. Best of all, the Blendjet 2 cleans itself. Just blend water with a drop of soap and you're good to go. Plus, they have so many trendy colors to choose from. The hardest choice will be which design you want to rock. And we also want to introduce you to their Orbiter Drinking Lid. The Orbiter Drinking Lid balances a leak-proof design with one-hand use convenience and a modern minimalist design. The Orbiter Drinking Lid is so easy to use, you only need one hand. Blendjet's patent-pending design allows you to open and drink by simply rotating the lid with your thumb. Just when we thought the Blendjet 2 couldn't get any better, it did. Now you can blend anywhere without spilling everywhere. So what are you waiting for? Go to blendjet.com and grab yours today. And be sure to use the promo code COFFEEANCASESBLEND12 to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, power, and innovation of the Blendjet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Blend anytime, anywhere with Blendjet 2 Portable Blender. Go to blendjet.com and use the code COFFEEANCASESBLEND12 to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. Shop today and get the best deal ever. So, I said that, you know, this case had some interesting forensic-y details, and we're going to talk about those now. Okay. According to peoplepill.com, in 2006, in 2006, and this I did not even know was a thing, but when I read okay. about it, I was like, interesting. Okay. There is a way that, because I had no idea what this was when I first heard about this, but there is a way that scientists can take pollen or other spores that are on your clothes or you know like a bag or something like that and they are able to tell where geographically you would have been to get those spores on your clothes oh fascinating well it it makes sense because the flora is different you know in all different states so that is super interesting i would have never even thought to look no i wouldn't have either and Early in the investigation, if you remember, police noted that the tan lines on Tammy made them believe that she wasn't from New York and that she was maybe from the South or out West. And this idea piqued the interest of a man named Paul Chambers. 
Okay. And this man was recently hired as an investigator in Monroe County, New York, in their medical examiner's office. And he wondered if maybe if they were able to look at Callie Doe's clothes, if they could determine mm-hmm. a place of origin based off what they were able to find on these clothes. Go Paul Chambers. That's awesome. People are so smart because so I smart. would not think to do any of this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I guess that's why this isn't my job. But um, <laughs> he asked for and received permission to send her clothing to, this is so hard for me not to say, like, paleon, like a paleonol, you know, the people that do. Oh, paleontologist or, or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But he sent them to a paleonology laboratory at Texas A&M University. And this okay. lab took Callie Doe's clothes or Tammy's clothes and tested them to determine what kind of pollen was on them and where in the United States she would have had to have been for that pollen to end up on her clothes. And so here's what they found. All right. So I'm obviously not going to say the scientific name for these. Oh, yeah. I would not expect you to. Because I can't say people's names, so I definitely can't say (laughs) that. So among the types of pollen that were found on her clothing by Texas A&M were... Um, Australian pine or she oak, just regular oak, spruce was on there, and birch. Okay. And those clothing pollen grains were compared to a control sample, again, so smart, of the pollen grains from the field where she was found. Okay, because it's rural, you said. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And they're like, you know what? If she had been there for a while, then all of these pollens should line up. Mm hmm. And people noted, quote, oak grows wildly all over the United States, and spruce and birch grow in New York, among many other places in the country. But no oak, spruce, or birch pollen grains were found in the control sample, and neither spruce nor birch trees were found growing near the body dump site. The spruce and birch pollen on the unidentified body came from species common in mountainous areas of California. Mm. End quote interesting so on top of that this australian pine that was on her clothes mm-hmm. is actually an invasive species so it doesn't it's not natural to the united states it's been brought here okay. and because of that it's just in limited locations in north america so there's some in south florida some in parts of south texas parts of mexico there's some on the campuses of Um, Arizona University and Arizona State and then there's some in three different regions of California so some in Saint in San Francisco San Luis and San Diego areas because these trees can't survive autumn and winter seasons so they would not be in New York colder climates okay so investigators knew that these pieces of clothing thus Tammy herself had to have been recently in somewhere other than the state of new york and most likely california yeah and they do believe that she was in southern california particularly the san diego region that's their best i guess pollen print match for all of these grains that were found on her clothes which i think also makes sense with the jewelry Mm -hmm. oh yeah that's right So, based on the pollen evidence, the girl's visible tan lines, forensic researchers suggested that she may have been living near San Diego, so that southwestern United States, and then traveled 
more than likely hitchhiking through mm-hmm. the Sierra Nevada mountain range where spruce and birch grow, passing through Reno, Nevada, and traveled across the country to upstate New York. So Gosh. she, again, has seen a lot of the United States. I just, you know what's getting me? What? Is I keep going back to, because I found it odd, that her boyfriend is, you know, back home in Florida. Mm-hmm. She's in Georgia for that mm-hmm. the prison ministry. That she would not have said anything to her boyfriend about where she was going. Because if she's calling him every day, then she at least feels some sort of affinity toward him. That is, if not love, at least an emotional connection. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how often their phone calls took place, but Mm -hmm. I do know that she called him regularly. But again, she is only 16. And so, you know, your interests change frequently at 16. So maybe it was just one of those things where she was just kind of done with him. Yeah, and moved on, maybe. But still, I I think even just from his perspective, like if, you know, I had a friend who just randomly quit talking to me, I would probably mm-hmm. be a little concerned. And maybe mm-hmm. he was. Right. We don't know. Yeah. It, so we believe that after she left Georgia, that she goes all the way back out to California. Mm-hmm. And then all the way back to New York. Back to the East. Okay. Yeah. Now we know that Callie Doe is actually Tammy Joe Alexander, but obviously that wasn't always the case. So I want to discuss how... Callie Doe found her identity. Okay. She actually went a very long time without her true identity being known. So remember, Tammy's body is discovered in 1979. It wasn't until 2015 that we found oh, out wow. Callie Doe's true name was Tammy Joe Alexander. So a long oh, time. Oh, my. Yeah. Wow. So remember earlier in the episode, we were talking about Tammy's background, how she was a waitress, and that she had a tendency to run away. And she had that one runaway episode with her really good friend. Yes, Laurel, where they went all the way to California. Yes. Well, that same friend, Laurel, you know, she's thinking into the year 2015, I wonder what Tammy Joe's up to. And I do this a lot. I'll be like, I wonder what so-and-so's doing that I've went Mm -hmm. to... And then you look them up on Facebook yeah. or something. Yeah. yeah. You know, that I haven't seen since Google fifth grade. Them. I wonder what they're mm-hmm. doing. Mm-hmm. I did and the same. she did that too. So she's like, hey, I wonder what she's up to. And so she turns to social media in the hopes of finding Tammy and just, you know, maybe send her a message just to catch up. Yeah. But, you know, she actually searched and searched and couldn't find Tammy anywhere on any type of social media platform. And so she's like, you know what? I'm going to Pamela. Pamela. Yeah. I knew it. Yeah. yeah. So she reaches out to Pamela, who now lives in Panama City, Florida. And, you know, Pamela, from what I could tell, knew that Tammy had often run away from home. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that she knew about the, like, prison runaway. Okay. The because, final. You know, she, yeah, right. Because yeah. she hadn't lived at home since she was 11. Right. And the last that she knows, she's hoping that Tammy would, you know, maybe find a foster care home to stay at or, you know, something that would get her away from 
this mm -hmm, just really, get out yeah so she calls up pamela and after the conversation that the two have they're like i haven't talked to Tammy, and pamela's like i haven't talked oh. to tammy the last i knew spoke with her i was going to live with my grandma and mm -hmm. she's like you know what i'll contact some of my other family members and just see what's going on mm -hmm. and she actually learned that no one in her family knew anything of tammy's whereabouts since the girl went missing in the late 70s so when she left home oh to do that nobody files thing, a report nobody does anything well there's dispute about the reports okay so learning that no one in the family had heard from tammy since 19 like 79 or whenever that last phone call to her boyfriend came in mm -hmm. the two become very concerned that tammy has fallen victim to some sort of crime after leaving home because even if she had ran away and never came back most people have some type of social media or you can google them and find right something about them but they're finding right. nothing about tammy and Pamela said, this is where the dispute comes in. Pamela said that when she talked to her mother, her mother said that she filed a missing persons report on Tammy when she went missing. But because Tammy had a history of running away, the police didn't really take it very seriously. Okay. I could see it both ways, if we're being honest. Mm -hmm. I could see why people doubt tammy's mom because of her history. Oh, her history yeah i could also see just because of our case last week now also in the 70s the early 70s of that mentality oh yeah i forgot about of that. teenagers you know when they're like well and especially one who's run away before mm -hmm. why I, I could i i can imagine that they might have said, you know what, she'll come back, just wait. And then, you know, no follow-up is done. I do think, though, that that should have a very easy paper trail. I mean, surely yeah, there, I would there's think. a record of that. And, you know, Tammy's family, even if they did file this missing persons report has got a lot of backlash about mm -hmm. her disappearance and this seemingly nonchalant attitude about not hearing from their loved one for so long because you know in the case last week you had the dad and mom oh yeah like, he demands no. mm -hmm. yeah you're filing this mm -hmm. we're gonna follow through with stuff on our end right. without you like we right. don't you know we can do this on our own she didn't have that you know right which is sad that is very sad but i would agree with i would agree i understand why there's a lot of backlash because even if mm -hmm. you go to the police and they say she'll come back you know once a week goes by and she doesn't yeah well, then you f you go again mm -hmm. so but in august of 2014 the hernando county sheriff's office told pamela that there had been no missing persons report that had been filed for tammy they didn't have anything on record and so mm. pamela promptly files one gosh which is wow you know, in 2014 yeah which i mean i think pamela's doing the best she can she, i mean she wasn't even at oh home, yeah yeah she's know, not even aware had no idea about any of this right mm -hmm. in a freak chance this is amazing to me as well this man named carl 
Koppelman, who was a California artist, came across this missing persons report of Tammy's as a moderator of a web sleuths online community where these like volunteers try to solve cold cases, including those mm-hmm. of unidentified bodies. So he felt the pull to help in this case. So in 2010, he sketched a portrait of Callie Doe because, you know, at this time, the Callie Doe was before the Tammy missing persons report, the right. sketch that he made. Right. Okay. And he posted it to NamUs, just hoping that, you know, we can get a visual of this girl. Somebody sees it. So this is, again, four yeah. years. Mm-hmm. And again, four years before Laurel and Pamela have even started searching for Tammy. He okay. does this drawing. And then in September of 2014, he sees the listing for actual Tammy. So it starts out, he sees the Cali Doe listing. He does the sketch. He does the sketch. He posts okay. it. And then, years later, he sees the actual missing persons report for Tammy. And there's a picture of Tammy. And he's like, holy crap. <gasps> this is the same person that I drew in wow. 2010. Yeah. I have yeah. goosebumps. That is crazy. The yeah. odds of that happening. Wow. Oh, I know. Because how many people are really going to go back? And yeah. I don't mean, I don't know. Maybe. I, just, I don't know. I just find that so amazing. That, that is. he would, first off, remember that. Because I would not mm-hmm. remember four years later, five or whatever. Mm-hmm. But he emailed the Livingston County Sheriff's Office with copies also sent to NamUs regional administrators. He sent copies to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. He sent copies to the Hernando County, Florida Sheriff's Office. Look at him say, go. No, he's like, this is not going to be overlooked. And he says, hey, these people have a very strong resemblance. I think this may be the same person. And the police are like, yep, I think you're right. Wow. And so they contact Pamela and they're like, can we get a DNA sample to see if this girl oh, is Tammy? Because wow. they're half she sisters. Okay. Mm-hmm. So in January of 2015, the Monroe County New York Medical Examiner's Office found that the mitochondrial DNA from the unidentified body matched that of Pamela, confirming that the victim was her half-sister. Wow. And a week later... On January 26, 2015, the Livingston County Sheriff's Office announced officially at a news conference that Callie Doe had been positively identified as Tammy Joe Alexander. Oh, my gosh. Well, now begins. Now it's so sad because they're looking for her to reunite. And mm-hmm. now they're looking for her killer. Yes. Yeah. And Pamela's family discussed what to do with Tammy's body because you know at this point she's already buried in the Greenmount Cemetery in Dansville, New York. And they mm. end up deciding to leave her there because yeah. she's been there for so long. And according to my research, the Daughtry funeral home that's located near there actually removed her Callie Doe headstone and replaced it with one that said her actual name, Tammy Joe Alexander. And when that new headstone was placed there, they had a public ceremony on June 10th, 2015 in her honor. And there was approximately 100 people there from the community or family members that attended to 
pay respect to her. Wow, and that's Pamela, quite a few. Yeah, it is. And Pamela and other memory members of Tammy's family were able to thank the Livingston community and the police for taking care of her, you know, when they couldn't and for loving her wow. and for trying to find oh, her killer. Gosh. Wow. With Callie Doe finally being identified, like you said, this is just the spark investigators mm-hmm. need to reignite the flame to find out who this killer is. Right. Because even when she was Callie Doe, we still needed to know who this killer was. And now, that we now know they can Tammy, look into that's yeah, people she that. knew or we know where she's from. We know. Yeah. yeah. And an important detail that they took into consideration was the fact that we know Tammy left home and she went to Young Harris, Georgia, to this prison ministry. Mm-hmm. And through that, police say, you know what? These three men, we need to check these guys out. Oh, no. So they they identify three male persons of interest who had known Tammy through this program. Okay. They take DNA samples from those men in question to compare to that sample that was taken from Tammy's clothing. Mm -hmm. But in November of 2016, the FBI announced that the men didn't match that DNA that was taken Mm. and they were no longer considered persons of interest and were pursuing other leads. You know, I never read in my research that these people their names were ever released. I don't mm-hmm. know really how um, investigators focused in on them, but they've been ruled out. And mm-hmm. by 2020, it was announced that the male DNA found on Tammy's clothing was now being tested in national databases in search of like a familial link to the killer. Oh, interesting. Another cool thing that they did was on her... 57th birthday so november 2nd 2020 they actually released recordings of tammy's voice to the public and these were messages that went to her then boyfriend and they were believed to have been sent to him just months prior to her death and they were released in the hopes that somebody would be like oh i talked to that girl in rio nevada in 19 whatever and she was so does she have a recognizable gregory Well, we're going to listen to them. Oh, okay. But I think their main hope was just that it would spark a memory somewhere. Okay. Because along with this voice recording, they also put out a sketch of who they believed to be her killer. What? How would they know that? Because there was one sighting of Tammy... And a man that was thought to be her killer. So either in October or November of 1979, we have reports that Tammy was seen in upstate New York. So we don't know if she got there in October or November. But people saw her in upstate New York right around the time that she was murdered. And Mm. I found in my research that... On November 9th, 1979, Tammy was seen in a diner in Lima, New York, alongside a man that was older than her. And the waitress who served them states that Tammy didn't appear to be distressed. She didn't appear to be upset or in any type of danger. And other people at the restaurant have since backed up the claim that Tammy was spotted there. Oh. And Tammy was later killed sometime after leaving that diner with this unknown man because... 
we can verify that because <gasps> of the contents in her stomach. The food. Yeah. So they actually also release a sketch of Tammy's presumed killer along with those audio tapes. And he is described as being a white male between 5'8 and 5'9. And at the time he was wearing black rimmed glasses and he drove a tan station wagon. So we have a pretty good amount of, yeah, you know, information on him. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to let you listen to um, these clips. So if you click on that link I provided you, it'll take you to the clips. Okay. Well, hi, Kevin. How you doing? I'm fine. That was nice to hear from you. I'm very glad to get so like a little southern drawl. And mm. investigators did receive tips based off the stuff that they released. So that sketch and these three clips that we'll post the other ones for you all too. Um, but obviously nothing really came out of those or we wouldn't be talking about Tammy Joe today. Right, right. So we have gotten to theories and various theories have emerged during the investigation and all these subsequent years, you know, attempting to shed some type of light on the things that happened surrounding Tammy Joe's murder. Mm -hmm. And one very prominent theory suggests that Tammy Joe Alexander was a victim of a serial killer that was operating in the area during the 70s. I feel like if you were a serial killer, the prime of your life was 19 the 1970s it was like the time right right because you know we have several notorious serial killers that would have been pretty much anywhere tammy joe would have been because she was everywhere right (laughs) that's true and yeah and some believed that her murder could be linked to one of those known serial killers or maybe um, like an unidentified serial offender. There's mm-hmm. no concrete evidence that we have that links Tammy's murder to any specific serial killer. We do have one serial killer that admitted to her murder. But we know that happens quite often. Falsely. Yeah. And yeah. And this serial killer was Henry Lee Lucas. And he was arrested in Texas a few years after Callie Doe was discovered because he was suspected in a local murder case there. And Lucas eventually confessed to killing Callie Doe, but he never identified her, you know, because at that time she was unidentified. Uh, Okay. But after confessing to one murder, Henry Lee Lucas then confessed to another, and then he confessed to another, and another, and another, and another. Uh... And before long... Texas Rangers had cleared, they had cleared more than 200 cases based on this serial killer's confession. So he's claiming Mm. to kill over 200 people, which. Right. But his confessions became more and more far-fetched as they went on. And police lost confidence in his confession of the murder Mm -hmm. of Tammy. Mm -hmm. Because it initially He is talking about things that weren't released to the public. But then they are looking at these photos that they've shown him. And they're like, oh, well, if he paid close attention to these crime scene photos and really analyzed these. He could have seen this. Then he could talk about details that the public, yeah, they don't know about. Right. Um, It was also rumored 
that police, some officers were, you know, asking leading questions or even mm. gave him pieces of information in these in confessions. Other and so a lot gotcha. of the, yeah. So a lot of these 200 plus cases that he had confessed to, they really are like, okay, no. And Tammy's was one of those. They're like, yeah, this is not a trustworthy mm. confession. This, mm -hmm. he did not do this. Mm-hmm. Another possible theory proposes that Tammy was murdered by someone that she had a personal connection with. So they're thinking, could this have been maybe an acquaintance? Maybe she was traveling with someone and she had been with this person for a while. Could it have been a friend? Maybe somebody she was romantically involved with? Um, this theory, a lot of people say, revolves around maybe some type of jealousy or revenge because they would have had a personal interest in her. I do think the gunshot wounds and where she was shot is more personal mm -hmm. than some of the other cases that we've covered. And also, and I know this is going to sound odd, the fact that she wasn't sexually assaulted, I almost feel like because she's young and I saw her picture on the the website that you oh, yeah, have the pretty. clips from. Yeah, she's very pretty. And I, I would have thought that if this were a random person who has picked her up, that there would have been mm -hmm. some sort of motivation like a sexual assault that maybe she fought against or something like that. And I almost feel like the fact that there isn't signs of sexual assault shows that she and her killer mm -hmm. had some other kind of personal connection you know and so yeah. like like the jealousy or the like there being another motivation so i think yeah. that theory is interesting and, you know i wonder if i wonder if it could have been somebody that was jealous of her contact contact she was making back home to her boyfriend i wonder if that could have played into it you know a lot of people throw shade at tammy tammy's family for not being more concerned that their teenage daughter ran away from home and wasn't heard from for years mm -hmm. decades really without even looking into what could have happened to her i definitely right. don't think and I didn't read anywhere that people said anything negative about Pamela because that just makes right. zero right. sense right. to say that, that, you know, that type of speculation. Mm -hmm. But some speculate maybe her mom or the stepfather know more than they care to share with police. But, you know, as far as I know, neither of them were ever suspected of anything and both went to the grave not knowing what happened to Tammy or like. That Callie Doe mm -hmm. was Tammy. They did not know mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Because Tammy's mom, Barbara, died at the age of 56 in 1998. So, she, Callie Doe was a thing, but she didn't know it was Tammy. Yeah. I do find it interesting that on her obituary, it does list Tammy Alexander as one of her children, but it lists her as deceased. Oh. And I don't know who hmm. wrote the obituary. I don't know if it was like the funeral home and, mm. you know, or if a family member wrote it. But I think mm -hmm. that detail is interesting. That is very interesting. 
especially because of the the runaway times in the past that I wouldn't have thought that she I would have just thought or assumed that she had started a life somewhere else or something. Yeah, and I don't think from everything I read, I never saw anything that police well, they weren't even investigating it because there was no report, so they wouldn't have said, "Oh, we think Tammy's dead." Mhm. Cuz they weren't right. There was no report of Tammy even missing for them to be looking for her. Hmm. So I thought that was a little weird. Some people bring up the idea that she could have been involved in human trafficking. You know, given the circumstances of her case, some theories say that sh- this could be a possibility. You know, that lack of identification and the fact that her body was discovered in a remote area kind of fueled speculation that this could have been a possibility. But there's no real concrete evidence to that. And I don't know how how frequently that happened in the late 70s. That's what I was getting ready to ask. Yeah. Does today. Yeah, I'm not sure either. That's what I was getting ready to ask you. Yeah, I know you definitely didn't hear about it then. Right. So I just don't think that's a very plausible theory in my mind. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, I talked about this briefly earlier when we were talking. Some people think could it have just been someone local to the area because the body was found in such a rural place that people are like, you almost had to be from here to get to this road that's with on this cornfield. Um, you know, you would have had to been familiar with the region and the area to use it as a dumping site to avoid any type of detection. I mean, they're pretty, pretty brave to shoot her along the side of a road. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you would have to know that that road maybe isn't the heaviest traveled to be able to pull something like that off. But right. like the question there is, did we examine any type of, people from that area that had a history of violent crimes or criminal activity Mm -hmm. have we ruled out any people like that and then i also think they could be a local connection and tie into you know like this hitchhiking theory which we've talked Mm -hmm. about throughout is that something Mm -hmm. happened to her while she was hitchhiking i don't Mm -hmm. think it had to necessarily be you know she met a man in reno and he drove her all the way to new york and killed her it could have been she was picked up by somebody from new york and they killed her right yeah i think i think you're right and i'm gonna throw a third in there as well i think that Local connection, hitchhiker, and personal connection aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. I think you could have somebody who's all three. Mm-hmm. I think you could have someone yeah. who we know that that Tammy hitchhiked. So that would make sense if she were p- picked up as a hitchhiker. And this person says, hey, you want to, you like to travel around, you know, I'm from New York. I'm, that's where I'm headed. And maybe she says, hey, that sounds pretty Mm -hmm. good. And she's with him, you know, long-term. And I'm saying him because of the male DNA on her and the sightings in the diner. Maybe she's with him long-term. They end up developing a personal connection and then something happens where he feels Mm -hmm. betrayed or jealousy or whatever. And that's when the crime occurs. So I think, I do think you're right. I think you do need to look at local connections. Um, 
And obviously, this was someone who was traveling from elsewhere. So we need to look at somebody who was either a truck driver, a delivery person, or somebody who had to travel out of town a lot for work. Yeah, I agree with you. The disappearance and subsequent murder of Tammy Jo Alexander, also known as Callie Doe, remains a tragic and unresolved case that's puzzled investigators for over three decades. Despite her identification in 2015, the circumstances surrounding her death continue to raise questions and elicit theories about the identity of her killer. The various theories surrounding the case range from the involvement of a local serial killer to personal connections or even the possibility of human trafficking. However, it's crucial to approach these theories with caution, as they're all speculative and require further investigation and evidence to confirm their validity. The identification of Tammy Jo Alexander was a significant breakthrough, shedding light on her identity and providing some closure to her family and loved ones. However, the crucial task of uncovering the truth about her murder remains an ongoing challenge. It's imperative that law enforcement agencies continue their efforts to re-examine the evidence, revisit witness statements, and utilize advancements in forensic technology to bring her case to justice. The unresolved nature of Tammy Jo Alexander's murder serves as a reminder of the importance of cold case investigations. It highlights the need for continued public awareness and cooperation as any piece of evidence, no matter how seemingly insignificant, could be the missing link in solving this tragic crime. Ultimately, finding the truth behind Tammy Jo Alexander's disappearance is not only essential for her family, but also for the pursuit of justice and the prevention of further acts of violence in our society. Investigators have received thousands of tips about this case, with no clear answer yet about who murdered this teenage hitchhiker all those years ago. However, Tammy's sister still holds out the hope that the real killer might be brought to justice someday. Pamela said, quote, Somebody has to know something, and just my personal opinion. We haven't reached the right person that has the piece of information that will lead this case to being solved. I always have hoped, and I will never give up till the day I die, hoping that they find who killed her. End quote. Again, please like and join our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, to continue the conversation and see images related to this episode. As always, follow us on Twitter at Cases Coffee, on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast, or you can always email us suggestions to coffeeandcasespodcast at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about our podcast so more people can be reached to possibly help bring some closure to these families. Don't forget to rate our show and leave us a comment as well. We hope to hear from you soon. Stay together. Stay safe. We'll We'll see see you you next week. notes with Maggie and Allison. Whoop, whoop. And we want to send out bounds of love to a lot of people, to Desiree, to True Crime and Oddities, and to True Excess Crime, XXX Crime on Instagram, as well as Laura Lee, the host of Victim's Voice podcast, for reaching out to us on social media this week. Mm-hmm. We love knowing that you're out there, that you're friends of ours, and that you care, because that just makes us feel good, and you guys are amazing. Yes, you are. And we also want to give love to our newest five-star review writer, JJG, who wrote, quote, you ladies are the bomb diggity. 
I love your podcast. Keep up the great work, end quote. And, you know, first of all, let's bring back the phrase bomb diggity because it's amazing. Yes, agreed. But <laughs> I also love the, just the collaborative, supportive space that we're in, you know, being in mm-hmm. the true crime world. It is honestly a breath of fresh air to lift up others and to be lifted up at the same time. So thank you for that review. It means a lot. Yes, and we must tell you that we have so much love going out to our newest Patreon member, Megan. So welcome to the CNC Mm -hmm. Patreon fan, Megan. Megan. We are very happy and excited that you are part of that family and you're willing to support the show. And don't forget that you can also, just like Megan, join our Patreon family to support the show and receive some bonus content each month. And that ranges Mm -hmm. from full-length solved episodes to interviews to mini episodes episodes and all of that starting at just five dollars a month and the link to join is in the or you can go to patreon.com slash slash copying cases plus if you want to join at a higher tier then you will also receive quarterly swag boxes from us and no matter what level you join we do occasionally do drawings for giveaways like the one on this episode That's right. So everyone who had joined Patreon by the 28th, since that's when we drew, because this episode is airing on the 29th, was eligible to win a Coffee and Cases mug. So let's do that drawing now. Okay. Let's spin this little wheel that's on my computer full of like 50 some names to see who wins that mug. Here we go. And the winner is who is it? Who is it? Who is it? Lauren J. Lauren J. Lauren J. Awesome. So Lauren J. We will be reaching out so we can make sure that we have your address so we can get that mug to you. And with that, all of our love is going out to each and every one of you. Until next week, Sleuth Hounds. <laughs>